broadcasting from Melbourne, Victoria. You're listening to the Investor Exchange. Tune in each week and listen to the guys from United Global Capital discuss the topics that matter the most to your finances. Each episode will help you separate the noise from what really matters, giving you timely and actionable information you can use. We'll cover areas related to financial markets, property, politics, personal finance, and the economy. Now, here's your host, Stephanie Sumner. Good morning, guys in the studio, and good morning to our listeners. We've had a bit of a false start this morning with our recording. Lucky you guys didn't hear that. But, uh, Joel, how are you this morning? Obviously, haven't had a coffee. <laughs> what are you saying, Steph? Are you, in, are you implying that I'm, I'm, I'm working up on the wrong side of the bed today? Oh, you? slightly grumpy this morning. Huh? <laughs> <laughs> Nearly the weekend. Uh, it's a big week. It's been a big week and a big year, you know. And I guess I've, I've got one eye uh, looking forward to the next two and a half weeks and, uh, and what lies ahead of us after that, which is hopefully a few weeks of just peace and bliss. But we'll see how it all goes. Yeah, and I think you, you mentioned before that you're, you're sort of getting a little bit over the video conferencing, which I think everyone is starting to get to at this sort of stage in, in the game. So uh, face-to-face meetings are certainly preferred at the moment, uh, you know, particularly by you, Joel. Well, we have uh, obviously had the return of work uh, and we've had uh, office uh, office workers have come back in accordance with the Victorian rules. Uh, 25% capacity is allowed back in offices uh, over the last couple of weeks. Uh, as a as part of the easing of the restrictions, and um, just having that personal interaction uh, has been really, really uh, enjoyable. To be honest with you, um, we haven't had that for for such a long time, and and it's even you know great just having that vibe back in the office and having staff back in the office and seeing the the camaraderie and the and the talk around the water bottle around the water fountain and even in the kitchen and ah, it's been really good. It's been really good to see people back, and even the city. I have noticed uh, walking from home, walking home last night, the city between sort of 5:30, I think it was when I was walking home, um, just it felt like it was almost uh, you know at, at, at levels that were consistent with where it was pre-COVID. Um, I know that obviously the many of the office spaces in in Melbourne are still you know very much underutilised, but just the number of people walking around on the street at that peak time of the city um, just just gave me a nice little, you know, buzz. It was good to see the city having uh, a little bit of that buzz back. It's got some yeah. life again, doesn't it? Yeah, it does. It does indeed. And Louis, you you were back in the city as well, weren't you? You came in and um, the other day as well. How's how are the staff sort of going with um, integrating back into the offices? Uh, I've been in for one day, and mm-hmm. I think anyone who's been through this lockdown uh, and is reintegrating through the world goes through that sort of almost a rebirth experience mm. like oh am, am i am i allowed to see people again <laughs> am, am i allowed to uh, like uh, bump elbows and, and be in the vicinity of more than five people at a time uh so it's all all a bit uh um, wide-eyed and and doughy for, for me at the moment uh and i'm gonna have another day in the office um and it's that face-to-face interaction uh which which when you go back to the video conferencing environment you just realize that fraction of a second delay which is usually unnoticeable mm. but it, it's actually very tiring when you're doing the video conferencing um, yeah. particularly in the group video conferencing if it's only you and one other person on the other end well then video conferencing is not so bad because you say your piece the other person says their piece but when you're in a group environment and people are trying to jump in with something or wait for a gap in the conversation, it's very hard to, uh, to, to judge and just all the timing's off and it's just so much better going face-to-face and, and just having some, um, uh, some, some actual time with people. Someone, I've, someone I know from a long time ago, um, he was referring to, to sales in general, but, but – um, uh, he used to describe it as a contact sport. Um, it's there's certain things when it's face to face, it's just that much more effective and that much more of a message gets conveyed between people. Um, and uh, and that's life really. Life is a, a contact sport. 
Um, we're all human. We're all social beings, and that uh, that interaction between us is just part of our makeup. Absolutely. And what about you, Brett? I mean, how have you found coming back? And have you been back in a couple of days or just the one yeah. day? Yeah, I'm a bit of a floater. I sort of come and go, yeah. which has been 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 good for me in a way. It's a, a bit of a balance, but. Yeah, I've enjoyed being back in there and, and I've met a few of the new guys, which obviously we've, we've put on a lot of staff over the last six months, a lot of which we've never actually seen face to face. So it's been nice to to see them. And as Joel said, yeah, there's a different energy when when the place is full. It's yeah. uh, it's great. We, we had our Christmas party yesterday and we met a whole bunch of staff for our own work that um, I'd never met before. And it was it was such a weird interaction. It was just almost learning again how to, how to interact. And as you said, Louis, about that elbow bumping, it was a little bit weird to know how to greet somebody. So it's just sort of, um, you know, teething and getting back into into real life. So, yeah, it's going to be interesting. Yep, yep, exactly, exactly. And especially people that um, that have really been missed. Um, I've found it really hard uh, not, to, not to hug everyone. Um, <laughs> yeah, that's exactly right. Some people are a little bit wary when you go to do it. So other people are like, it's fantastic. And other people are still a bit, bit concerned if you, you go yeah. after them for a hug. So. Yeah. <laughs> But it's even uh, yesterday I had a couple of people come into the office just to help us out with some marketing uh, collateral that we we're looking for, and and I had to ask the question: Are we are we good to shake hands? Are we good yeah. to shake hands? And most people are saying, "Yeah, I don't care, I don't care." But you get the odd one who says, mm, "Just bump, yep, yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's understandable." All right, guys, well, we might turn to our first topic for the day, and. Um, Brett, you're going to kick us off this morning and you're going to be speaking to us this morning about dwelling sizes and what the current trend is for apartment and house sizes. What can you tell us about I am. that? Yeah, I'm going to let you know that uh, Australian houses are the biggest in the world. We've been duking it out with the United States over, over the last decade or so for whose house sizes are the biggest and currently it's us. Wow. wow. So, okay. well, it's, I would have actually thought it was a US. I'm, I'm shocked with that. Oh, well, I, I guess it would depend on the data pool that's coming through, and it's hard because not yeah. many other countries have a good data pool to really compare with. Uh, New Zealand's probably the only other one that has regular information. Uh, what do you think the average dwelling size is in Australia? Well, let's talk houses. So average dwelling size is a different stat. What do you think the average house size is in terms of square metres? Are we talking internal or are we talking the internal, whole land just, size? Just the house, yeah. not, the, not the lot. I'm going to say 200 and... 40 square metres. Uh, that's really good guessing, very close. So the average new house built in 2019-20 in Australia, 235.8 square metres. Oh, not bad. So pretty damn close, uh, which is up 3% from the year before, which is the biggest increase uh, in 11 years in Australia. So the so trend building downwards. Uh, so and been heading downwards for, for quite a while as developers obviously tried to give less for more money. Uh, yeah. But it sort of hit a limit where purchases started to push back and, and wanted more space. Uh, so it's pretty close. So in America, they, they use the square feet measurement over the top of or instead of the square metres. Uh, but by comparison, their to average of 2,509 square feet is equal to 233.1 square metres. So we've got them by just over two square metres per dwelling. There you go. Uh, uh, apartments have also moved in the same direction. So they've, they've actually lifted by 6% over the past year. And I think this is a good thing. There was uh, there was a trend certainly in the uh, probably early part of this decade where developers were building smaller and smaller apartments in, in a quest for profit uh, mm -hmm. and creating a lot of inferior types of dwellings. So the average apartment size, Joel, you've been a good guest so far. What do you think the average apartment size is there? It's been uh, I'm, I'm going to say a... I'm going to say 90 square metres. Ah, mate, you've blown your record now. <laughs> I'm going to tap in. That's That's got to be way off, I, I reckon. Um, I reckon your your average one better uh, would uh, would maybe be 55 or 60. Your average two better might be might be around uh, 80 to 90 on average. Um, and, uh, and, and I reckon your average... For total apartments is going to be somewhere between the two. So I'm going to guess, let's go 70. Yeah, you're probably right, Louis. Guys, mm -hmm. you're, you're a long way off. And oh, no really? Way. Yep. I'm very surprised to, to actually tell you that the average new apartment 
was uh, 136.8 square meters. Wow. wow. Really? There you go. Wow. So That's fascinating. Joel, you must have been to... viewing the ones in the, in the Melbourne CBD. <laughs> Maybe they're a little smaller. <laughs> yeah. Well, I, I guess this shows that the, the trend is moving away from those one-bed and two-bed investor style into more owner-occupier and downsizer type properties. Yeah. So. But I was actually surprised myself that it was that big. You know, one, 136 square metres for an apartment, that's quite generous, you know, compared to most of the apartments I've ever lived in and looked at. Yeah. I was going to ask you, I think ages ago on the podcast, you had mentioned one time that, um, you know, apartments had to have uh, natural light coming in to a room before it got counted yeah. as a second bedroom. Has that been a push with that as well? Because there was a massive um, uproar about that. I remember that didn't happen that a couple of years ago. It was. So especially the, the Victorian government introduced what they called BADS, the Better Apartments Design Standards. Yeah. Uh, and the big thing about it was making sure setbacks from neighbouring buildings, natural light coming in, the depth of, of rooms, um, even though you might have a window into a room, if it's very deep, the natural light doesn't reach all the way through, um, more functional layouts, better access. Uh, and it was in light of a lot of the towers that were going up in the CBD were just so close to each other that there was mm. not enough natural light. You had people on balconies basically being able to share a cigarette. Yeah. Uh, and they just didn't seem that to be appropriate. There's so, actually a uh, few down towards um, the casino that look like they're just about to, to – you could you could not there's not much space between the buildings. I think, Joel, we passed them not that long ago and you said, my goodness, look how close they are. We even have a pocket around uh, Little Burke Street and uh, Elizabeth Street where – uh, one prominent developer has uh, built his own block of, essentially block of apartments in that vicinity, and they and they just they're so close together. It's uh, it's incredible that you know someone would want to actually live in the apartments that were right butted up and adjacent against the uh, another apartment tower. Mm. Yeah. So it's but the I'm assuming other states. I haven't had a good look, but I'm assuming other states would have similar things. But the Victorian government's bad system is. It's been an evolution. Um, I think it was first introduced in about 2013 or so, and, and I think it's still ongoing as they keep evolving it. It's, it's not just about the internal amenity now. It's about the design of overall buildings where a lot of the tower-type structures uh, are no longer going to be straight vertical walls. They're going to have a podium of maybe four levels and then set back further to create more open space and light. So it's, it's an ongoing thing, which overall is for the good, uh, but... Still comes back to a surprise that um, that the average uh, apartment size of that nearly 137 square meters probably means that there's there's a lot more construction of of dwellings out in the suburbs rather than the the dense cities where where they tend to be bigger sized apartments. Okay, so house sizes. What can do you have the actual statistics on the U.S. house size? Uh, in terms of well, what, what the average is for them if we're yeah, slightly yeah, sure. bigger. Yes, yeah, so 233.1 square metres is their house size. Uh, I, there is something. So this all comes from the Economic Insights uh, Home Size Trends Report, which Com Comsec released uh, earlier in November. Uh, so they gathered a pool of data. Uh, let me just see where I can find the, the more information about the US, because they do also compare US apartment sizes, and I think US apartment sizes are on average bigger than Australia's. Okay. Even though we've got the house size uh, covered, I think they've got average apartment sizes, or as they call it, condos, are a little bit bigger mm. over there. Um, can't quite find that data yet, Steph, but I'll keep looking. Uh, I'll compare it with some other places in the world. Um, so the ones that they've been able to get some data from, uh, the average in the, so in June in New Zealand, 157.4, so pretty small. For, a, for an average house size, mm. uh, yeah. and Canada, uh, 221.1 square metres. Right, yeah. Mm. Now, the places where I'd, I think we'd struggle to live then, um, the, the best data pool they've got from Europe range from an average of 43.9 square metres in Romania. Wow. Oh, wow. <laughs> it's a shoebox. <laughs> wow, isn't it? And if that's the average, you have to say there's some quite small ones in there to, to blend that out. Uh, uh, through to, I think Cyprus was the biggest uh, size they found in Europe at 141.2 square metres. 
Right, Cyprus. Lots of way uh, more populated and dense than than what we are. So they've probably you know got a lot of old apartments and a lot of small. I was going to say you know, take into account those really old-fashioned sort of um, apartments or houses. So and then they were they did seem to be bigger in some of the back in the day. So. Yep. And state by state. Uh, so the the state with the biggest house house size being built is the ACT. Which really. Yep. Yeah, no one wants to live there. That's why. Oh well, and and Holly's <laughs> like having their big open space. So yeah, yeah, their, their average new house is is two hundred and fifty six square meters. Oh, okay. uh, but Victoria is not far behind at two hundred and fifty. So obviously, with those two being above the average, there's got to be some other states bringing it down, which is uh, Tasmania and the Northern Territory. Um, Tasmania at only one hundred and seventy nine, uh, and the Northern Territory at one hundred and eighty nine. Brett, is this looking at new dwellings, is it? Or is this dwellings in total yeah, and average? Yeah. Okay, so new dwellings. And I've heard of an interesting concept. Uh, yesterday I was actually watching the Groon transfer and they were talking about it in advertising. Uh, and they, uh, one of the things mentioned was that um, when people are buying something, um, branding something as aspirational is, is a huge pull. Uh, whether you're talking about uh, retail sales or, or or anything, and I just wonder how much that ties into uh, the types of homes that are being built. Um, and if you build a, a new home, and, and the developers trying to build it to sell it, right? So, yeah. what kind of product are they going to build to sell? Um, they're they're going to struggle to build something which is low cost and and not premium. Um, they're they're going to try and build something which uh, appeals to people's aspirations. And what are people aspiring to? Well, they're aspiring to a bigger home, not a small home. They're aspiring to a home with the the, the nicer fixtures and fittings, um, not a uh, not a cheap and crappy one. So um, I just wonder if it's um, a function of the way that this new stock is is coming about, um, and and that uh, developers are simply building what people are wanting to buy um, rather than any kind of strategic planning around what's actually going to be the best from a from a town planning um, or a or an overall society point of view uh, I think Louis it's it's a combination of both obviously the regulators have, have set down some ground rules that they're not going to you know it's some bare minimums that have to be met which have forced um, certainly in apartments the dwelling sizes to increase but the market will always dictate. Whoever the developers are, they're, they're in it for profit, so they need to know they can sell it, as you've said. So they're going to be trying to come up with, with sizings and designs that, as you say, meet the market. And because it's new dwellings, most of the time I would say a fair portion of, of new dwellings are selling to younger people, aspirational type people. I mean, of course, there's the downsize of market, but I would say if you blend out all new new homes being built across the country, a larger portion would be probably younger and first home buyers. So I, I guess that aspirational type of marketing would, would relate to that, definitely. And, and Brett, do you think that, I mean, I often speak to people who say, I want a bigger house, so I'm going to go out further for my first home. And that's why these house sizes can be that large, because, you know, some of them are in those massive estates and, and can sort of sprawl out and, ha you know, get the fittings and fixtures they want for a lot less in their new home. That, that, that's a definite part of it. I mean, the, the biggest issue with, with property prices, and it's what we talk about from an investment perspective, is, you know, the old adage of, of land appreciates and, and dwellings depreciate, which is, is fairly true. I mean, it doesn't always come to pass that, uh, that the dwelling depreciates so much. Uh, yeah. But, you know, the, the land costs close to the CBDs are, are quite expensive where people just just can't buy big enough lots to build a house on and have a backyard. It, it's just so cost prohibitive. So it's where the greenfield sites where developers are, are subtitling new land lots that, that mm. tend to be where people can get these bigger dwellings. Interestingly, though, Steph, unfortunately, the report doesn't touch a lot on lot sizes. Yeah. In fact, I can't really see any any lot size sizes mentioned at all. But from our own experience with developers we talk to, lot sizes are still actually decreasing. Um, so the majority of these dwellings, like when we talk about a 200 and say 240 square metre house, I would assume that the majority of those are built on two levels because okay. we're still seeing a lot of a lot of lot sizes under 400 square metres uh, and even as small as 300. Um, and in order to get enough open space, driveways, yards, you would assume that a lot of them are the townhouse style where, you know, you've probably got a uh, living area and and 
um, you know, entry and, and dining downstairs and bedrooms upstairs. That seems to be a very common design. Uh, mm. So one of the things, even even a 235 square metre house uh, can actually be dysfunctional. So it's important not just to get the size right, but to actually get the layout. You know, a lot of the time, if, if hallways and stairwells take up a big chunk of that, you're really not getting a lot of usable space. So good design in, in housing is, is just as critical as lots of dwelling size as well. Yeah. Interestingly, I live in a, uh, my house is a townhouse um, and it's an upside down townhouse uh, with the living areas upstairs. And yeah. I, I love it because upstairs you get so much more natural light uh, and you get such a, a, a nice feeling from being elevated. Um, and it's not like we have great views of anything. It's just a suburban street. Uh, but you're but but there's a few trees on the street and you're just up at that tree level instead of being down at the the car level and the cement level. So when you're looking at the window, it's just that much nicer. Um, and uh, it's it's just interesting that you talk about great design, Brett. I, I guess that might even come down to personal preference and um, and and people are going to build a a variety of different dwellings. Um, and there's no there's no one ideal uh, that's that's going to be right for everyone. Mm. No, a lot of what you mentioned there too, Louis, the you know the reverse living scenario, which is really common these days. A lot of it's based on how the lot is is designed as well. So if it's deemed that your ability to have indoor outdoor space isn't great on the on the ground level, that you're not going to really be able to have sort of a dining room go out to an alfresco, mm. they will. Well, are we better off to put the, the living upstairs where we can take advantage of maybe the better light and, and potentially a view? Yeah, interesting. Yeah, yeah. So it's a consideration I would assume that the developers are making when they're designing for the, you know, the, the overall, um, not so much just house, because a lot of the time they're building a lot of them at once and they'll have a look at the lot and what the best assets are around it, whether it's the outdoor space and the, you know, the garden they can create or whether it's the views from the, from the higher level. Yeah. Oh, all in all, I think we're pretty lucky in Australia to still have that kind of uh, sized home when you compare it to other people around the world. So. Yeah, we are, and, and we're yeah. As I said, we're we're leading the way at the moment, but uh, it looks like we we tend to change with uh, with the states every couple of years. So we'll yeah. we'll probably repeat this discussion in a year or two. <laughs> For sure. And also oh. in a year or two, what's going to happen is we'll we'll have a whole uh, a year of being sort of post COVID or or at least post lockdown. Uh, and uh, and a bit more bit more insight into the the, the working from home situation and, and how that's going to pan out and the impact that that might have on on dwellings as well. Yeah, good thing to take into consideration because it, it probably will change. So and and just to see how America actually fares after um, what actually happens with COVID over there and, and whether there'll be changes because we're starting to open right back up and don't have that same um, same threat as COVID as what they do at the moment. So only time will tell. Okay, guys, um, we might just finish that up there with that last topic and we'll throw to a quick break and we're going to come back and speak to Louis. Want to learn the strategies that have achieved returns more than double the return of the average superannuation fund? Each day, clients of United Global Capital are using strategies and tactics that were once thought the domain of the professional investor or the super rich. Book your seat at UGC's Financial Fast Track Seminars where you'll learn the science behind selecting high-performance stocks and real estate, how you can participate in advanced strategies like property development, short selling, and international investments, as well as how to protect your wealth against major adverse market events. To secure your seat, simply go to ugc.net.au slash events and select the seminar that suits your needs. Seats are limited, so book your spot now. Okay, welcome back. Now, Louis, you're going to talk to us this morning about what high net worth investors actually do. Tell us a little bit more about this topic. Yeah, thanks, Steph. So following uh, last week's uh, podcast where I was talking about some tax structures for high net worth individuals and, and the use of, of family trusts, uh, and I gave a bit of a basic overview and I, I didn't go into the more complex type of structuring that can get used um, uh, and, and some of that complex structuring is for business owners as well and the use of companies within trusts and, uh, uh, and, and trusts that are the owners of companies and beneficiary trusts and that sort of thing, uh, which, which starts to become the advanced tax planning 
um, for, for a high net worth individual. But the other side of things is how does a high net worth person uh, actually structure or, or ha- what are the actual assets and investments that they hold? And how are they different from a so-called average or ordinary investor or, or uh, sometimes known as a retail investor? Well, these days, I reckon the line is getting a bit blurred. Um, the, the the legal definition around a sophisticated or, or wholesale investor is, is a person who's got a certain amount of, of net worth or a certain amount of annual income each year. Um, but I think the access to investments these days kind of make that definition um, a, a little bit redundant because the types of investments that we can get into, the, the entry point for a lot of those investments keeps coming down further and further. So the question becomes, well, if you do have a growing amount of wealth, then how could I invest the way a high net worth person invests? The other thing that's worth considering is with the way that superannuation has evolved, your average punter who works through their life and raises a family with kids is probably going to end up with at least a quarter of a million dollars in their super at the time of retirement. Uh, for for a husband and wife uh, on an average income, that's certainly the amount of super uh, that I'm seeing on a pretty regular basis uh, to go towards funding their retirement. Uh, and, uh, and that's um, also commonly exceeding a million dollars. So people who have never thought of themselves as being high net worth individuals, well, actually, you've got um, either slightly under or, or over a million dollars of investable assets. And that's people who are in their 60s now who actually didn't have compulsory super for their entire working life. Compulsory super only came in uh, in the early 90s. Uh, and people who are entering the workforce today, they're doing it with the higher percentage rate of compulsory super contributions and they're getting that rate of super contributions from their very first job. So in the future, we're gonna have people with uh, with 40 years of career uh, of, gar- of, of superannuation guarantee contributions going in and, uh, and much higher balances um, at the end of it. So what do people actually do with this money? Uh, if, if you're in your typical retail or industry super funds, then the strategy that they use for investing is a large scale set of investments where they've got billions and billions of dollars uh, to invest, which allows them to achieve some benefits in terms of their cost savings. So because they're managing such large amounts of money, the expenses for running the types of administration and the types of investments that they do can be done at a pretty low cost per dollar of investments. However, that kind of investing also has its drawbacks. And one of the major drawbacks and probably easiest to understand is that when they are investing such a large amount of money, it actually prevents their ability to move that money quickly. And and that prevents their ability to react to different market circumstances. And this coronavirus situation is a perfect example where your typical uh, large superannuation fund is going to be invested in big Australian businesses, such as the banks and mining companies. And through the coronavirus situation, Joel, correct me if I'm wrong, uh, but companies that are economically sensitive uh, have been the hardest hit through the coronavirus crisis. And what has emerged is uh, is companies who have been more innovative, uh, who have always uh, being supporters of technology and uh, and disruptors and uh, and developing into new markets or new products and services, they've really uh, had um, an acceleration in the adoption of their services and products and technologies. And if an investor or a super fund hasn't been able to move quickly to take up those opportunities, then their investment performance in this year especially has really lagged. And that's where we're finding a a massive difference in the portfolios that we're running for clients versus uh, retail super funds or industry super funds. Uh, And and that discrepancy between the two has been huge. So what does a high net worth individual do? Well, one of the things they do is they have a much more tailored 
investment portfolio in share markets and they have uh, a service in place where the ability to change that portfolio is faster than your typical investment portfolio. So at UGC, we automate that process, but there are a number of different ways that you can um, you can achieve that. Um, a, um, as a generalization, you might think of a high net worth individual saying, oh yes, I have my stockbroker and I can call them on the phone at any time and we can change the portfolio at any time. Well, uh, that, that's the kind of flexibility that I'm talking about and the kind of speed at which you can change your portfolio that I'm talking about. However, stockbrokers are not necessarily the best course of action to achieve it, and it depends on their business model and what they're actually getting remunerated for. If they're just getting remunerated for transactions, well, they're going to have an incentive to uh, to want you to place more transactions and not necessarily have an incentive to get the best investment return. At UGC, we automate that, uh, and we do have that um, uh, trading that can happen, but we have a business model which much more, which much better supports uh, actual value for investors. Then some of the things that high net worth individuals do is more advanced trading strategies, and that will probably incorporate the use of other instrument instruments. So not just buying sell shares and then selling them when the share price is higher. Uh, but more advanced strategies that might incorporate some short selling, so identifying an overvalued opportunity and taking advantage of a reduction in price. Advanced strategies such as the use of derivatives or portfolio hedging, which is something which Joel talks about a lot. And once you've got those strategies in place, then the other thing which high net worth individuals do is they then start to source, once they've got a certain amount of money in, uh, in in what is a pretty typical uh, share portfolio, but managed using these advanced strategies, then a high net worth individual can start adding on the edge of their portfolio some more fancy investments. The mistake a lot of average people do, or people that are not high net worth do, is they hear about something that might be the next get rich quick scheme, and they've only got a small amount of money and they put their small amount of money into the get rich quick scheme. And the majority of time these get rich quick schemes don't and there's a there's a high amount of risk that's associated with it. What a high net worth individual will do is they will say, well, I've got the majority of my wealth in a very secure investment strategy, but let's start looking at small investments from a small part of my portfolio into something that does have higher risk and could have a huge payoff. And that's where you start accessing um, private investments. Uh, you might find a small company that's not even listed on the stock exchange and, and that's an opportunity to get in very early into, a, into an investment. Uh, you might have, uh, you, you, as a listener, you might be familiar with the term private equity or venture capital and you could start accessing these types of investments. So it becomes very interesting as a high net worth individual uh, as to the additional investments that you can do. And uh, I thought our listeners might be interested in that as some insight uh, for, for some of the things which UGC starts to consider uh, when we do um, uh, get a higher level of, uh, of net worth for clients. Um, on the property side of things, so Brett, to step into your territory, from a, plan, from a financial planning point of view, people do a similar thing when they don't have a huge of worth straight away. The mistake that some people make is they make their first investment property a speculative investment property purchase, and they get that investment property in a high-risk area. Uh, and some examples I would have is maybe they try and make their first investment property a commercial investment property. And commercial investment has some different risks and some additional considerations that you need to make. Or maybe their first investment is um, in a, a regional area which is very dependent on a particular uh, sector of the economy, like a mining town. And that might pay off if all the things go really well, but there's lots of examples of mining towns who reach a certain price, but then they stagnate or they actually go into a major recession if that industry leaves that location. So mm -hmm. there's a high amount of risk. 
So what a high net worth individual does is they build a property portfolio of much more secure real estate. They'll get their first investment property, they'll add a second, third, fourth, and fifth, and they'll build a really sound property portfolio, still looking to make high returns, but not looking to try and take any big risks. You're not trying to pick the the next best suburb, because if you're trying to best pick what might be the best returning suburb uh, of all the suburbs in Australia, you're going to need to take some risk in there. Um, ideally, when you look at the Herald Sun's annual list of the top 10 capital growth suburbs over the last 12 months, you actually don't want your house to be in one of those locations because of the risk that was probably inherent in that location for it to have those boom conditions, because when you've got boom conditions, you've also got that probability of bust conditions. So, uh, so a high net worth individual would accumulate a secure property portfolio, and only once they're getting their fifth or sixth or seventh portfolio would they then look to add a speculative investment in there, because now they've got uh, uh, the ability to take on a little bit of that extra risk and have something that might pay off a huge amount if it goes well, but if the investment doesn't go well, it doesn't impact the majority of their portfolio. So Louis, just I thought on, that might be interesting uh, as a concept. Yes, Joel. Louis, Louis just on that point, uh, you know, I know of, I know of quite a, a number of successful families uh, around Melbourne who um, in, get themselves involved in real estate development, but real estate developing, which is more at the speculative end of the real estate market, uh, does come with a fair degree of risk. However, these families don't don't necessarily uh, put all of their eggs in the real estate market. Most of them have built their their wealth through industry or through um, you know other business ventures, and uh, and real estate development is a part of their portfolio that they have on the outside or fringes of it. Um, and the different asset classes that they invest in many. Many of these same families will take different parts of the of the asset class uh, in order to get their exposure to real estate. So some might lend, uh, some might put together a portfolio of real estate investments, but some of them might be you know first mortgage secured lending facilities that they provide. Others might be you know other forms of investment might be mezzanine debt or second mortgages, uh, and then uh, and then other parts of their portfolio might include actually you know the equity tranche that uh, goes into developing the real estate project. Uh, and so it's, it's about, like what you said, it's about getting the core of your portfolio right, uh, and that will allow you to be able to defend any of your speculative positions if, for whatever reason, additional cash or capital is required to top up uh, you know, loan, loan facilities or tipping extra equity through those ventures. It gives you a, a strong basis to defend those positions and uh, better guard against risk should uh, one of those investments not work out the way that you expect it to. Louis, yep. I was going to ask as well, for the average investor, how do you know that you've got enough money to start looking at your investments in a different light? What what type of amount should sort of change your, your tact or change your plan? It all depends on the numbers that you're talking about, uh, because if your um, if your income is a certain amount and the retirement income that you're aiming for is a certain amount, um, then you might have one less zero on your target number mm. than someone else. So, so it's hard to put a number on it, and it's more the concept of you have the when you start, you start with something that might. Uh, feel a little less exciting. Sometimes we get first-time investors coming to us and they're really excited about a potential investment that could potentially pay off and this yeah. could be their, their big ticket out of here. Um, and, and unfortunately, we sometimes need to take the heat out of those clients uh, because we mm. do know that this approach uh, often doesn't work. If, yeah. you, if you are constantly... Uh, if you are building your wealth and you have your first investment as a speculative investment and all you do is add more speculative investments to your portfolio, um, we know from experience that that is not the path that leads to the greatest success. Yeah. So yeah. for first-time investors, yes, we sometimes need to take a little bit of excitement uh, out of uh, what you might be thinking. Um, it doesn't mean it's not part of your journey. It just means that there's a pathway to get there for when it uh, for, for for the right time. Yeah. 
So it's all, all around seeking that advice again, isn't it? Well, it's right, yeah. right recommendations. So. It, advice certainly helps. Advice certainly helps. And whether you're doing it yourself or whether you're accessing a professional, uh, it's it's like uh, Stephen Covey says in in management: begin with the end in mind. And when the end in mind is well, in ten years' time or twenty or whatever your um, your your target wealth date is, which is a retirement date, what does it look like? when it's my retirement date? Am I aiming for 1 million or 5 million? If I'm aiming for a certain number, then what might the makeup of those uh, total assets be? Well, if it's 5 million, well, then it's going to be a combination of real estate and share markets. Well, then how might I break it up? If I've got $2.5 million in, in share markets, well, then how much is in a, 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 um, a, a core portfolio and how much is speculative, mm. um, et cetera? Uh, really, really good advice. Look, guys, we are going to have to uh, leave it there because we've got to head on to our next topic because so we're going to throw to another quick break and we'll come back after this message. Are you concerned about your finances? Maybe you're not sure if you'll have enough money to retire on. Or maybe you've received a redundancy, inheritance or even a significant promotion or perhaps a life-changing medical diagnosis. Regardless of your concern or financial position, United Global Capital's advisors are experts in the areas of strategic financial planning, taxation, superannuation and self-managed superannuation funds, risk management, estate planning and investments. Don't let fate dictate your financial future. Take control today and contact United Global Capital for a no-cost, no-obligation financial strategy consultation. Simply call 03 8657 or email info at ugc.net.au and book your appointment today. Okay, now welcome back. Now we're going to end with our final topic today. And Joel, you're going to speak to us about Australia coming out of the recession and really the current sentiment levels that are in the stock market. Thanks, Steph. Yes, we, uh, we got, we've got some great news this week that officially Australia has come out of its COVID-19 recession. Uh, we recorded a, a gain of 3.3% in the third quarter of this year, uh, so to the year ending the end of September. Uh, that came on the back of a 7% decline in the second quarter of 2020 um, and, uh, and indicates that... Um, you know, obviously, this was the, the largest and sharpest recession that Australia has experienced since the Great Depression, but it was um, very much looking like this is going to be a V-shaped recovery, and, uh, and the road to recovery uh, looks as though it's well and truly underway. The Reserve Bank of Australia also came out and, and suggested that uh, they now expect unemployment, the official unemployment rate, to peak between 7 and 8%, probably somewhere in the, in the mid to high, high 7%. Um, so that's, uh, in the grand scheme of things, a, a relatively benign outcome as well for a recessionary uh, environment. Um, the, the effective unemployment rate or the true underlying unemployment rate is somewhat higher than that, but uh, it's somewhat mar being masked by the JobKeeper program that is, has been in place. Nevertheless, um, you know, it, it feels like a seven to, you know, mid-sevens uh, unemployment rate because most people uh, are still financially got the income coming through the door that they wouldn't have had through uh, recessions that have had uh, that we've had in previous uh, instances. Um, we've had a very sharp uh, uh, bounce back as well in terms of household gross disposable income. In fact, uh, household gross disposable income rose by more than eight percent in this most recent quarter, um, and that is a uh, that that takes us back to the highest level of uh, gross disposable income increase, which was uh, in the last 10 years, which occurred coming out of the last recession. Um, well, the recession that wasn't a recession, I should say, uh, everywhere else around the, around the world went into recession except for Australia, which was the global financial crisis. So, um, you know, often we see these huge increases in. Uh, household gross disposable income uh, as uh, as people go back to work and we see uh, you know large shifts in employment and um, and uh, you know obviously people have more money to spend. Victoria was the worst performer out of all of the states. Uh, Victoria record was the only state in Australia to record a negative or a contraction in state final demand. Um, New South Wales was up around the high uh, around the high six percent. 
Um, so was Queensland. Uh, South Australia not too far behind them, uh, but Australia uh, contract. Uh, sorry, Victoria contracted uh, around about uh, one one and a half percent through the through the quarter. Uh, New South Wales made up the most uh, uh, re was most representative of the GDP numbers or state final demand. It represents around about 32% of state final demand uh, in Australia, where Victoria being the second represents around about 24% of state final demand and Queensland about 20%. Uh, WA comes in at fourth at around 11% and the rest of South Australia at seven, uh, ACT at three, uh, Tasmania at two and Northern Territory at 1%. So um, with Victoria now opening up, I think we can also expect that, uh, the, that there's going to be a continuation of that recovery. Economists are expecting 2% recovery rate in the final quarter of this year. Um, I think that actually might be a little bit uh, on the conservative side. I wouldn't be surprised if we're seeing um, you know, a, a growth rate closer to probably the 2.5% range because Victoria looks like, uh, for all intents and purposes, though it is... Um, it is getting back to action. And I mean, you know, you can see it, you can see it within the restaurants, you can see it on the streets, you can see it um, that the recovery is well and truly underway. And, uh, and that recovery is only going to get, gather momentum as further restrictions are eased in Victoria. Um, so, so all in all, uh, this, is, this is very positive news for investors. You don't want to be betting against the recovery. It's, uh, history has time and, and again suggested that um, you want to ride with the trend and, and not be fighting that trend. Uh, so good things ahead for the Australian economy, and I think that uh, that is being reflected also in the Australian stock market. If we have a quick look at the Australian stock market, um, we can certainly see that uh, it is also putting in its own uh, version of a recovery. In fact, in the last uh, month alone, the Australian stock market has increased uh, by more than 10%. So it's gone from a uh, opened the, the month of November um, from a level of uh, 5,900, uh, closed at 5,951 uh, at the start of November, uh, to close at, at the uh, currently to be uh, trading at 6,615. So the Australian stock market is certainly also starting to boogie on the back of this good news. However, um, we are starting to see just some concerns when it comes to sentiment. So um, we, we, we run a, a screen of various sentiment indicators here at UGC, and we, we get these updates on a daily basis just to check in and, and take a temperature gauge of where the market is. Technically, I should say that you know, when we're looking across most markets uh, that we invest in, uh, most of the developed markets, technically most markets are still looking pretty good. Um, the United States is, is still the beacon of strength. Um, and we're seeing their stock markets break out to new all-time highs in uh, in the last uh, last number of weeks, uh, and we're also seeing a, a broadening of that strength as well, with the mid-cap section of the market being the Russell best indicated by the Russell 2000 index. That sure. Is Can I just ask you yeah. what, what causes that? What what causes that strength in the U.S. market when it it looks like it's doom and gloom over there? Why why is it strengthening? So we need to be aware that the stock market is a forward-looking. Um, uh, indicator or it, it looks forward. It doesn't look at what the numbers are today to price what assets are going to be worth. It looks forward to where where it expects markets to uh, where it expects corporate profits to be in 12 or 18 months time. So it's yeah. looking through the negative headlines right now, and it's looking through those headlines um, that, are, that are suggesting all the doom and gloom and the you know the, the record rates of hospitalizations and the record rates of daily COVID cases mm. and 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 seeing that there's a number of po uh, really positive vaccine um, trials that are, that are coming to conclusion and that a number of these vaccines are going to be uh, approved and distributed over the course of the next several months through the United States. So, you know, if those results are, are consistent with the actual rollout that takes place, um, with those trials versus what happens with the rollout, then you can, for all intents and purposes, America and Europe and much of the Western world will be back and, and operating at uh, normal capacity by the end of next year. So the market is not looking at what, what the headlines are today. It's looking at where these corporations are going to be earning their profits in 12 months' time. And if you, you, know, if you can believe that, that the vaccines that are going to be rolled out suggest that you know, this virus is, is probably going to be conquered by the end of next year, uh, or at least well and truly under control, 
then um, economic activity should continue should should be back at levels that would uh, support those those higher prices and investors are anticipating that right. but certainly in the short term on, off the back of this vaccine of this vaccine news that's putting a lot of optimism into the stock market so we have a look at uh, at the CNN fear and greed uh, index and that's now sitting at a at a uh, reading of 86 it was actually at 91 last week um, now that's a that's a measure that reads between zero and 100, and a, and a 100 reading is a is a level of extreme greed. Now these are, sentiment is generally considered to be a contrarian indicator. So the old saying is that be fearful when people are greedy, and be greedy when people are fearful. Um, so there's potentially uh, some some sense of just being a little bit cautious here, um, as as uh, sentiment readings are getting to all time high levels. Uh, we've also seen the U.S. Uh, advisors sentiment report came out today as well, and that and that has bullish uh, advisors at a at a reading of 64%, which is which is an extreme level uh, for this reading, and bearish advisors uh, below 20, which is the lowest it's been since the since early this year before COVID broke out. So we're seeing levels that are consistent both on the CNN fear and greed index and also the U.S. advisors sentiment report that are consistent with levels um, where we've seen previous corrections in the U.S. stock market. We're also seeing the put-to-call ratio, the number of put options that uh, are being bought versus call options at an extraordinarily low level. Uh, that, what that basically means is that everyone is, is tilted towards the long side of the market. No one's buying put options at the moment. They're all buying call options. And that's an indicator that uh, investors are very much skewed to the upside and, and betting all of their money that this market correction, uh, that this market's going to continue to rise. So, all, for all intents and purposes, there's, there's reasonable reason to be cautious here. However, the problem with uh, contrarian indicators is that most people think that you need to read those indicators in a contrarian manner all the time. Now, there's an interesting study that has just been put out this week by, in fact, it came out yesterday by uh, Sentiment Trader, which we, we follow quite uh, quite closely. And they did a study of the Investors Intelligence Sentiment Survey in the United States. And this is a very widely followed uh, investor sentiment survey published in the United States. Um, and, 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 it's, uh, and basically what they've done is they've gone back and had a look at this uh, study of, of when the Investors Intelligence Sentiment Survey goes to an extreme reading of 80% or more. Now, it doesn't happen all that often. Uh, over, since 1970, it's, this sentiment survey has only breached above 80 uh, on 5% of all weeks since 1970. So 95% of the time it trades below those uh, ranges. And what they have done is they've studied those instances when the index has breached above 80 and, and had a look at what the performance is of the S&P 500 uh, in each of those instances subsequent to the, the, the sentiment reading going above 80. And what they found was that, in actual fact, the average annualised return for the S&P 500 when this measure reached an extreme was actually 9.7% 12 months later, uh, when in fact, when it was bearish, um, and uh, and the and the ratio was bearish. The um, the uh, return actually fell to negative 3.6% 12 months later. So what that suggests is that the contrarian indicator status of sentiment doesn't always work out. And in fact, uh, many other studies that I've had a look at is that, that suggests that sentiment is only very useful in the very short term. Uh, so maybe there might be a correction here in the short term. We don't know, but there's there's enough in, um, indicators to suggest that we're susceptible or vulnerable to some form of a five, maybe ten percent pullback here. But it's a very poor indicator of longer term returns beyond the short term. So so what that is suggesting is that we might get a pullback here over the next month or two as we're in these extreme readings, or we may not see much progress in the next month or two. But medium to longer term, so looking six months out and 12 months out, uh, this is actually generally a pretty good sign for stock markets moving forward. Uh, the one caveat, obviously, is that we, we um, don't want to be at the end of a market cycle. We want to be at the earlier phase of a market cycle. And quite clearly, having had coronavirus correction right behind us and having had the recession now just completing, 
Uh, it's fair to say that we're in that phase where the uh, market recovery is underway. So we're not at that point where we should start to be thinking that this could be something more ominous. So if we do see a correction here, the main message here is that ride through it. Um, uh, you know, perhaps uh, if you've got new money, perhaps uh, scale into the market um, over the next several months. Don't uh, put all of your money to work straight away. Uh, but even if we do get a little bit of a, a wobble over the Christmas period, um, it, uh, it should generally uh, come and then go, and we should be looking at relatively high prices uh, by the same time next year. Good to, good to know it's heading in a positive direction for once, so that sounds good to me. Yeah, All right, guys, we're going to have to go to our final, final segment for the day, and that is You Can't Be Serious. I'm going to actually pick on uh, Joel this morning. <laughs> do you have, a, well, do you have well, a You Can't Be Serious for us? I, I do have a You Can't Be Serious. Um, I've got a novel way yeah. for, uh, for ensuring that people keep their social distancing up during the COVID uh, era. Oh, a right. Romanian... A Romanian clubber uh, has uh, gone through a boom uh, business environment, so somebody who's making shoes, uh, because he has designed and developed uh, a new size 75 in the European measurement for boots. Um, he was very concerned that people were standing too close to one another, so he felt that the best way to be able to ensure that they were socially distanced was to build shoes that would keep them Further, far, further <laughs> enough away from each other. So there we go. Uh, oh, I wonder if this guy's of... actually sold them. Well, apparently it's boom time for him. Apparently he's ordered. It's, it's the only shoe brand that is really uh, gaining any traction for him and has enabled him to keep his doors open during the COVID <laughs> shutdown. Wow. Wow, it's amazing. Yeah, I know, pardon the pun. I thought so as well. Um, How about I have you, a... Willie, what have you got for us? For, uh, for um, potentially becoming a high net worth individual, uh, although it is a very bad one. Uh, and uh, a, a bad strategy for becoming rich is stealing gold. Um, not so many guys heard, but, uh, but in the last uh, uh, few years, uh, Victoria's third largest gold heist occurred. And we're not talking right. about an old school train robbery or anything like that. Um, a guy walked into the Melbourne Gold Company uh, with the intent of stealing money and gold, and what turned out to be the case is his mate was actually the person working inside the store at the time. Oh, so no. What was, <laughs> what was captured on CCTV uh, was, um, uh, was his mate um, uh, pretending to be surprised at his presence and allowing himself to be uh, hogtied with cable ties on the ground uh, while the, the robber came around the store. The robber was, um, he had a, a hat on and safety glasses as a disguise. He had an unloaded gun. Uh, so they were trying to make it look like a real robbery. Uh, and he managed to get away with 28 kilograms of gold and 700,000 in cash. But what the CCT footage showed was his mate on the ground was trying to surreptitiously indicate that he should look in one of the particular safes, but the robber didn't pick oh, up no. his mate's cues uh, and actually missed out on an, an additional $4 million worth oh. of gold and cash. But anyway, oh, I thought it was unraveled. Fair to say. Yeah, yeah. and they, they caught up with him. And, uh, and he actually led them, uh, police, later uh, to the exact place where he had buried all of the gold and the cash, which was his uh, his <laughs> mum's house in Gippsland. Oh, my God. Right. Summer, not not the best get-rich-quick uh, scheme. No. <laughs> Love it. All right. What about you, Brett? What's your one for today? Oh, look, I'm going to tell you a story of a little white lie that backfired. Um, <laughs> yeah. Being a, a bit general here, but uh, in most households, it's the male that's uh, a bit more technologically savvy than the female. Uh, and one particular man bought himself a PS5, uh, which is very in demand at the moment. I'm not a gamer, but I, I understand a lot of people love this device. Uh, and passed it off to his wife as an air purifier. <laughs> <laughs> However... Uh, <laughs> A dead rat not long 
turned up uh, the, the truth of the situation when uh, the smell never dissipated. So she questioned how good the air purifier was and then discovered that it was actually the game. <laughs> At least he had a crack. I think it's it's pretty ingenious. So, (laughs) love it. All right, guys. Well, we're going to have to leave it there for the day. But uh, thank you so much for all your input this morning. And listeners, thanks for tuning in. And I think we've only got probably two more of these podcasts here. Is that right, Joel? Uh, I think that would be right, Steph. Yes, we'll have our uh, second last podcast next week and our final podcast for the year will be the week after. So, um, yep. And then we'll take a break for a number of weeks and uh, be back in early January or mid-January. We're going to have to put someone in a Santa suit. We will Absolutely. indeed. Absolutely. Yes, it's a shame they can't pay us. you there, Louis. <laughs> and with a bit of luck, we might even be able to come back into the studio early next year and record these. Gosh, imagine how polished we're going to be when we actually get in the room together. Uh, Much easier than this. (laughs) All right, guys. Well, have a fabulous weekend. I hope you get out and get some, well, we will get some sunshine. Um, But, uh, yeah, have a great weekend and we'll do it all again next week. Thanks, Steph. See you. Bye. Bye Bye-bye.